Today on the Women Mind the Water Artemis series on WomenMindTheWater.com, I'm speaking with Abigail Carroll, who became an accidental Mainer in 2010 when she adopted an oyster farm. She sold the farm in 2021. Her years working with oysters opened her eyes to the reality of climate change and how it impacts the ocean. These days, Abigail focuses on business innovation. She works as a mentor and invests in startups that propose healthy planet solutions. This is also the focus of her podcast. The Women Mind the Water Artemis series podcast on womenmindthewater.com engages artists in conversation about their work and explores your connection with the ocean. Through their stories, Women Mind the Water hopes to inspire and encourage action to protect the ocean and her creatures. Today, I'm speaking with Abigail Carroll, an entrepreneur who is well-versed in the marine environment, particularly aquaculture. Abigail has a master's in international affairs. Her degree is from Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. It's a field that explores opportunities in the global marketplace. Her background in finance and banking is not exactly what one might expect from somebody doing the physical work involved in raising oysters. Abigail sold her oyster farm in 2021 and became a mentor, an angel investor, and podcaster. She seeks to help small businesses get off the ground, be financially successful, and make the planet a healthier place. Welcome, Abigail. Borrowing from the lyrics of an old song, I'd say you've looked at life from both sides now as an oyster farmer and as an investor. In both cases, you believe that nature works well if you let it. I'm looking forward to exploring the art of entrepreneurship and how you apply it to create, as your podcast is named The Healthy Planet. Abigail, I'd like to begin by asking if you were always interested in nature and more specifically in marine environments. You know, I wasn't one of these kids that was outdoors all the time and, you know, fascinated by the nature around me, but I always have loved the ocean. I grew up in Maine. I grew up sailing on the ocean. I grew up, you know, going to the beach, collecting rocks, collecting seashells, sea urchins and sand dollars, things that we really don't find very much of on the beach anymore. Um, And at a very young age, sort of between the ages of like 10, eight and 10, um, we rented a house in the coast of Maine next to a gentleman named Bill Kurtzinger. And Bill Kurtzinger um, was one of the first people to photograph marine mammals underwater he was a huge uh he's you know one of the um most important underwater photographers for national geographic and he just happened to be my neighbor at those two formative summers and his wife was also an artist and i had an older brother and we would uh, sneak over to the Kurtzinger house all the time. And Bill was so kind and he had us into his dark room. He showed us how he photographed these humpback whales and all these wonderful marine mammals. And he taught us about, um, you know, the, the, the dwindling population of whales and how it was important to protect them. So at a, at, you know, nine or 10, I joined the Save the Whales Foundation, thanks to Bill Kurtzinger. You would think maybe you'd become a marine mammologist, but instead, 
you went on a different path. So did you ever imagine yourself working in a physically demanding job, like as an oyster farmer? Yeah, that didn't, it just, it just, it was not at all on my, my, I had many career visions for myself, everything from lawyer to fashion designer to, you know, all sorts of things I wanted to do. Um, and uh, oyster farming was definitely nowhere in the, any vision that I could have possibly imagined for my future. So I think most people have a good idea of what a farmer does, but are far less acquainted what, what it means to be an oyster farmer. Give us a sense of what an oyster farmer does. And is it a good deal of work? It's called a farm and not by accident. We really do many of the same things that you would do on land. We, we sort of plant oysters. We have, you know, you buy little seeds. You could also make seeds, oyster seeds, little baby oysters, but we call them seed, but they're basically little tiny, you know, millimeter sized oysters. Um, so you buy your seeds, you treat the seedlings different than you would the, you know, the the plants, the bigger plants, which are in the, you know, you plant in the soil. So we, we treated the baby oysters and what we call an upweller, which is like a nursery. You can have an onshore nursery. You can have a in the water nursery. And then when they get to a certain size, you put them in, we put them in floating gear where they live for about a year. And then um, we'd, you know, some would spend two years in the floating gear and some would be put on the bottom. We had we grew them two different ways with very different results. Um, you heard the word gear a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of gear for sure, but um, most farms, at least in Maine, are still largely manual. But what we do a lot of is tinker. There's a lot of tinkering on the oyster farm. Everybody's trying to figure out how to best run their farm. And everybody's farm is a little bit different because of just the the way nature works and the way the coast works you have different issues on every farm and you know they do well on the bottom in certain places they they you know by just seeding them on the bottom um and in some places you can't do that at all um in some places you have terrible tides or you know currents and it's very hard to keep gear in um so so as farmers mature on their sites, they end up creating a lot of gear to try to optimize their um, their work and the, the rearing of these oysters. So that part of it, actually, I found really fun. Um, you know, I built my own nursery out of a repurposed lobster tank and um, five-gallon buckets five gallon buckets was a big thing on the farm. Like I'd never, I never even thought about five gallon buckets before at an oyster farm. Um, but we made lots of things out of five, five gallon buckets. I, I hear the words challenge. I hear the word or thought of innovation. And I wonder um, how common is it for a woman to be involved in this business and how many women are able to get a foothold? It is not at all an industry where, you know, women can't get in because there's actually quite a long history of women in, at least in Maine, in, in aquaculture. I mean, as, as, as long as we've had oyster aquaculture in Maine, pretty much there have been women involved. So you um, did the oyster farming and then you kind of switched, flipped the coin as it were, and began offering capital 
to others to start innovative businesses. So I wonder, does that mean you made a lot of money from Oyster Island? <laughs> Is it a lucrative business? I don't know how many people are making a lot of money making oysters. I, I think it's more of a lifestyle business. I mean, I think there's some big, legitimately some big farms making some money, but I think margins, even on the scale businesses are probably still very tight. And um, uh, I think, you know, a lot of people are doing it because they love it. You, you get the, you get the bug, you get out there, you're, you, you, you relate to nature in an entirely different way. You're living the seasons of, of the life of the oyster, you're, you know, and you're out in the water. I mean, I was down in Scarborough and the Scarborough Marsh, which is Maine's biggest salt marsh. And it's sort of all very flat there. And and every day of the year, the light would shift just a tiny bit. I mean, it, it's a beautiful life to be out there every day. Can yeah. you describe a few of the elements that in your mind make an endeavor likely to succeed? You know, it's there's sort of the product market fit. You've got to find a product that has a market. Without that, you're just going to struggle. Um, but but to get that, you need to have a lot of flexibility. The founders that I think are the most successful are really open-minded, and they don't they don't necessarily impose their preconceived ideas on their businesses. They're listening. I think listening to your clients, listening to what's going on and making observations is probably the most important quality a founder can have. Well, you look at a particular niche. So you're interested in uh, businesses that are going to make the world a healthier, more sustainable place. And I'm wondering, many businesses are actually tied to some of the climate change, like, you know, businesses that burn fossil fuel. So how is it possible to believe that business innovation also can be a powerful tool in solving the world's problems? For a moment, let's not make gas and fossil fuels the enemy. And let's think about over the last, you know, 100 years, all of the good things that have been a result of the fossil fuels. Like we can travel around the planet, we can feed a planet, we've, we can, you know, our houses are warm, we have electricity. So, so the problems, the fossil fuels solved a lot of problems for a lot of time. What we didn't realize was that it was also creating problems. So now we have this new problem, but business, businesses built that fossil fuel industry up to solve all those problems. So now we've got this new problem, which is like, oops, we went too far. And we do that a lot, right? We go too far in one direction. And then we have to, oh, oh we, we made a big mistake. We made this huge bet. And now we have to kind of correct that. So for me, the same, you know, that's the new problem. And for me, just in the way that business solved all those other problems, you know, riding on the wave of fossil fuels, now we can solve these new problems through business innovation as well. Okay, so you're a podcaster and your podcast <laughs> is called Happy Planet Podcast. So I'm wondering, do you have one guest that in your mind is building a business that is an innovative tool for solving the world's problem? Or if they're all like that, can you pick one? Well, 
the one the the podcast or the 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 guest that was really the inspiration for the whole podcast his name is Brian Tsuyoshi Takeda and the business is called Urchinomic in in many many parts of the world there are urchin barons there's so many urchins sea urchins in areas that they actually devastate the local ecosystem right and and it becomes a dead zone where nothing can live because there's nothing, the urchins have sucked all the life out of it. And it gets so bad that the urchins start to die. So you've got these huge, huge areas of the of the ocean around the planet where these urchins are just basically gasping for life um, and, and they've killed everything around them. So he's going around and he's picking up all these urchins. And when he does that, the the kelp forests grow back and the right. kelp forests are these wonderful habitats for for sea life so he's pulling out all these sea urchins he's taking them on land and he's he's feeding them uh and breathing life back into them and they're going out to the market as a wonderful delicacy and so he's he's creating food He's creating jobs um, and he's restoring these ecosystems. So he's upcycling these pretty much almost dead urchins. Um, the ecosystems are getting re re repaired. And then he's actually using the shells too. After once he once he takes the meats out of the sea urchins, they're using the shells to um build um make fertilizer products and and other things. So he's you know using a hundred percent of the animal. Abigail, I always end the show by asking my guests to issue a call for action. I'd like to ask you this question in two parts. First, what do you think is the biggest issue that needs to be addressed in order to solve the world's problems? And let's focus on those relating to the world's oceans. I mean, I, I wouldn't know which is the most important ecological problem. I think the real problem is this sort of lack of consensus and unwillingness to cooperate. I feel like the problem's always the people. It's not, you know, we've got to, we have to um, talk more. We have to share more. We need international cooperation. We need, um, you know, we need a bit of a new paradigm. And it just seems like the world is getting more and more divided. And um, you know, humans are getting more and more divided and the climate issue is more and more urgent. Right. So I'd like to know, what do you think members of the audience can do to help effectuate change? I think we just all need to be really mindful of our footprint and our footprint extends to the things we buy, the things we wear, the things we eat. Um, and I think once you start thinking about your footprint, you and becoming aware of it, you start to change some habits. And, you know, and I, I think I think everything kind of comes down to our footprints. So uh, I know you're a busy person and I'm grateful for you the time that you made to be on the Women Mind the Water Art of a Series podcast. I expect listeners have learned much and found our discussion interesting and informative. I'd like to remind listeners that I have been speaking with Abigail Carroll, a woman who has worked as an oyster farmer and now as an entrepreneur helping innovative startup businesses 
that are designed to make the planet a healthier, more sustainable place. Abigail Carroll is the latest guest on the Women Mind the Water Artivist Series podcast. The series can be viewed on womenmindthewater.com, Museum on Main Street, and YouTube. An audio-only version of this podcast is available on womenmindthewater.com, on iTunes, and Spotify. Women Mind the Water is grateful to Jane Rice for the use of her song, Women of Water. All rights for the Women Mind the Water name and logo belong to Pam Ferris Olson. This is Pam Ferris Olson.